Hey, guess where you are? You're back in the Grotto Pod. Did we ever leave? It seems like we didn't leave. I he- I'm here in the Grotto Pod. Uh, Larry Rosen, that's me, along with Bridget Quinn, author here in the Grotto Pod for the second time in a scant 24-hour yes. period. I don't expect cocktails this time. No. Well, no, because she just landed Catherine uh, in Oakland and is on her way here. So she would have to buy cocktails on the way, which and seems that would unlikely. And untoward since she's bringing her 14-year-old. Oh, true. So. Not into the grotto pod. No, but it is appropriate that our guest today, Catherine Reynolds-Lewis, would bring her child along. Yep. Because she is known primarily as a parent expert, a parent educator, all things she's parent. Like a journalist parent wrangler or well this is something i want to get to uh she was pretty hardcore straight ahead journalist covering all manner of story Uh she has written for you ready brace yourself i am the atlantic monthly fortune usa today magazine group the washington post working mother the new york times slate parade i started cutting stuff out because there wasn't room they're all good she worked for bloomberg uh and for the newhouse news service she began the about.com website for working moms. Now, I think this is where the light goes on for right. uh, Catherine Reynolds Lewis. Being a working mom, she has just sort of made that her life's work. Uh, she teaches, I think I wrote down exactly what the classes are to teaching parents. Nope, I didn't write it down. But We're going to ask her. We'll ask her about that. But I know she does that sort of thing in her home in Maryland. Um, so the culmin- it seems to me if you're teaching parents, you have a giant pool of people desperate to hear what you have to say because – And those people are called parents. parents. Yes. Because yeah, it's like, yike, what's happening? I know. And it's nice to have someone help you. Right. So so this all culminates in her new book, uh, Five Years in the Making. This book is – uh, making a big splash. You know what? I didn't write down. I'm going to tell you what it's tell called. Tell me the name because I didn't write it down because it's, it's kind of long. long. Yeah. yeah. The good news about bad behavior, which I w- hoped was about, I don't know, hanging out and smoking cigars. But no, <laughs> why kids are less disciplined than ever and what to do about it. And you know what? I think it was originally a piece in Mother Jones, I It was believe. a piece in Mother Jones that became the most Huge. popular, uh, yeah. most retweeted, most clicked on. It was what what you always hope will happen, which is it went viral. Yes. Uh, And that's something I really want to delve into along, of course, with parenting. Does your life change overnight, especially as a journalist where you're always behind the story? And then when you're a parent and you're writing about parenting, are you then kind of like in the story? Mm -hmm. And and at what point, um, I was curious when she proposed this book, if part of the proposal, at least in her mind, was, and then I will be an expert on parenting. And everything I if that she goes feels with that. Like an expert on parenting. Well, she's called on to. She goes on TV. Yeah. She does all these lectures. Yeah. If you go to her website and, and and click on speaking, it doesn't have a calendar of appearances. It has clips of appearances she's already done. Right. So she's positioned herself as an expert on parenting, and I'm wondering that where that fits in to someone who has always been living their life out as a, as a journalist, as a right. straight journalist. And then, right, because you're not part of the story usually as no. a journalist. And as soon as you are giving talks like that, especially when you are a parent, you're part of the story. Yeah, and I wonder if it's something where she found her... Yeah, her people, her niche. Found her lane, yeah. Oh, um, also, you know what's really scary about that? To me, being out there talking about parenting is like just the way to get all the haters... Like pointing at you. Yeah. Like, because, is that scary or is it great? Like what's what's happening with that? And I, I'll have to tell her, you know, my own experiences reading this book were like the five stages of acceptance of grief. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's too late? It's too late. You start reading and you see things that seem familiar and you go, oh, no. And then about 10 pages later, you go, you know what? Screw this. I did a good job. And then yeah. a few pages later, you go, well, wait, let me see what this is about. Yeah. And then you go back and forth. I've been discussing with my sisters and other people I know with smaller kids. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, what they think of all this. And, and you know, I think like any parenting book, uh, there's going to be some stuff you can take out of it and some stuff you don't like so much. Yeah. And I wonder, too, the burden of that going in when totally. you decide to write this book, what totally. you're setting yourself up for. And also, like, is she does she feel like people look at her as a parent? Like, if your kid doesn't get straight A's or if your kid misbehaves, right. are you oh, yeah, yeah. somehow... <laughs> Should we be keeping a close eye yeah. on her 14-year-old that she brings? How's he behaving? Mm. Hmm, let's you know what? See. I think well, – first of all, I think it's cool that she has her kid along with her, I have to say. And the purpose of this trip is business I'm, I'm, or I'm, assume, I'm assuming it's business. I, I, I don't really know. But she's bringing him or her, did she say? 
Him, I think. Him. Yeah. Uh, with her here, I, I just think, you know, it's so easy as parents to kind of say to yourself, like, well, I have my work life and my home right, life. Right, separate those two. And somebody else can deal with my kid while I'm at work. Unless you're and, Caitlin Solomini. Right. She's amazing. Um, you know, I, but there is something kind of great about just integrating your whole life and having... Yeah. You know. And and sort of making that decision like, well, no, it's not going to be separate. This is – or who knows? She could have just said, I can't get babysit. I'm taking them with me. Right. I want to hear the story. I want to know. <laughs> so, inquiring minds want inquiring to know. Inquiring minds want to know. So let's go get her. Okay. And um, yeah, we'll delve into all kinds of stuff. Uh, oh, and I don't want to forget to say that I also want to find out the process by which one who is a working journalist takes five years to write a book. How does that all work? Maybe she got a really great advance. Could be. Let's find okay. out. Okay, Catherine, welcome to the Grotto Pod. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you and to take time out. Um, I was just talking about your schedule, which seems a little bit insane and a little bit not your usual book tour schedule. Although you do seem very calm to me. Well, I guess I I could possibly just be tired from oh, all the yeah. travel. That's true, true, yeah. But um, I don't know that there is a usual book tour anymore, right? Yeah, true. So, true. Um, it, yeah, definitely evolved um, Did it? From way back in the fall when I first started talking to the folks at Public Affairs about what are we doing for the book tour? Mm-hmm. And how has it changed? Um, I think we've just figured out what works. You know, mm-hmm. who's interested yeah. in hearing from me? Yeah. What kind of organizations are good partners? Well, um, you know, it, it's it's definitely a different kind of product that you're that you're out here selling. In that, it's not the kind of deal where you will go to a bookstore and do a reading because people want to hear your lyrical story of whatever. You know, as we were talking about it during the um, intro, by writing this book and by doing the other things you do, you've sort of set yourself up as an expert. Right? How's yeah. that feel? Oh, it's definitely um, been growing into that role, you know, because I was definitely something that way back, you know, when I first signed with my literary agent, he said, you have to be the expert. Mm -hmm. And, oh, this was so bizarre that when we were getting the proposal together to, um, you know, send out to publishers, there was this one throwaway line in my bio that I was a certified parent educator that I didn't think was a big deal, but it turned out to be important to publishers. Oh, yeah. You know, know, and I'm glad I put it in there in the first draft because um, that really is, it seemed to be what they're looking for. Well, certainly when you're handling a topic as hot button at this, as this, you can't just be, "Ah, you know, I'm into it. Okay. What do you got to say? Although, you know, what could be more um, – what more do you need to, to know than someone is a parent and a journalist? I mean, those are two pretty powerful tools mm-hmm. to, yeah. uh, of experience and the ability to ferret out, you know, what's the research, what's working. <clears throat> but I guess I'm curious, like, is it scary being that <laughs> expert out there, especially in the social media world landscape where, I don't know, I would just think – uh, people are ready to... And before you answer that, backing up to the proposal itself, yeah. was that part of what you were signing up for? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that when we talked about it, Richard and I talked about, you know, we don't really know what direction it's going to take, mm. but I certainly was open to, you know, what I'm doing now, which is a lot of speaking about, mm-hmm. obviously, the topics in the book, but also fielding parents' questions and, you know, on-the-spot troubleshooting so I was wow, fine with that's, that. That's yeah. really a lot. <laughs> but it's, you know, I became a certified parent educator really just because I kept taking more and more parenting classes. Mm. And so eventually at the Parent Encouragement Program in Kensington, they said, now you have to lead <laughs> them, okay? You're <laughs> done taking up. them. <laughs> and so then when you lead them enough and you volunteer yeah. enough hours, they say, you are now certified because you've gone to all these, you know, continuing education programs that I was just interested in learning as a parent, mm-hmm. as a parent really. Mm-hmm. And uh, to some degree, also helping the other parents in the classes that I was leading. So um, so it, it evolved. I didn't intend to become an expert, but having now been leading classes for six or seven years, oh my gosh, I have more comfort, yeah. you know, fielding those questions. And what about what that does to your career path mm-hmm. to where you're spending more time as an expert and more time appearing on 
Australian TV, perhaps. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I right. did my own pre-interview Look before we came here. You have a good source. I yes, do. because he went to the prime source. As opposed to sitting down and writing. Yeah. Or as opposed to, I mean, I can tell right. from this book and from your, from your CV that you are a big-time reporter. Yeah. So how, does, how do you juggle deciding, well, okay, I'm going to be spending more of my time now on TV than writing? Yeah, it's interesting because even as a independent journalist, you know, since 2008, I have had to do some writing for love and some mm-hmm. writing for money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm finding the speaking pays kind of better than the <laughs> freelance journalism. Babe, let me tell you, speaking pays more than books. Right. I mean, that's my experience that for sure. So I'm sort yeah. of thinking if I can right. put together another year of, you know, speaking engagements that sure. will subsidize my journalism, then I can report out the next book proposal and sort of, I totally you know, we'll see. But I, going into this, I felt open to whatever the next project mm-hmm. would be. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really know. You know, even now, but I'm definitely getting a lot of inquiries. Yeah, but so now is this your beat? Is parenting your beat now? Well, I think the book is the topic areas around the book are my beat, which, but I define it pretty broadly. So Mm -hmm. mental and behavioral health, um, Mm -hmm. identity, connection, relationships, um, sort of who we are now, like both as children and young adults. I'm really interested in all those topics. So I could see I have a couple other ideas in mind, and they're all in that realm of understanding ourselves, understanding where we are right now in 2018 with all of the distractions and anxieties mm. and stress that we're trying to manage as children and as, as adults. Um, you know, it just seems really relevant to me right now. Do you find – if I remember from reading – so I, I full confession, I've got about 100 pages in. But I remember reading that you had three kids and there was a big gap between the first one and the last two, right? Yes. So my question was going to be if you would find as your kids got older that you would become interested in that age group. But you've already been through it. Yeah. No, it's certainly true that I um, that I find that the age my kids are right now is the most interesting age. Mm-hmm. But having a span means that it, you know, I have a lot of interest. I, I did not birth my oldest child, but okay. she's our number one daughter. So, um, you know, certainly... You know, being part of the team that was raising her was definitely, you know, a huge experience. And, oh, and having her now as an ally and helping to guide the 11 and 14-year-olds sort mm-hmm. of up through the well, tough years and of tell adolescence. Us, tell, oh, there goes my notes. Oh. Tell, tell us, too, how that um, informed kind of your the thesis of this book, which is that that kid is going to be different from these kids, that kids, younger kids now are just plain different. Yeah, maybe you could give a little summation of the book. That's a good idea. (laughs) So the main argument of the book is that kids today are less able to manage their behavior, thoughts, and emotions than kids 20 or 30 years ago. So in fact, actually, that encompasses the early 20, mid 20 something. So it's Mm -hmm. this current generation of young adults who you know, grew up in an age of on-demand media and right. um, overscheduled childhoods and, um, you know, busier parents because we are all trying to just make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, now, and, and, and that we need different tools to raise them, that mm-hmm. the old way, you know, there's a debate about whether it worked in the past, but certainly right. it's not working now. One in two kids by the time they're 18 will have a mood or behavioral disorder or a substance addiction. And that means that they're all going to have to understand their own brains and how they function best and what tools help them to self-regulate. And I see that as the central challenge of parenting now is to be a mentor and Mm -hmm. coach to your child and figuring themselves out. Because there's no one set of rules that works for every child mm-hmm. and it, or every individual. For sure. Um, and these old strategies of like the carrot and the stick just undermine right. kids' well-being, mental health, and our relationship with them. I have heard from many early childhood teachers across different styles of education that they see children being very different right now. Yeah, every educator I interviewed for the yeah. book who had been in the profession longer than 10 years said kids start kindergarten less able to control their hands, 
to resolve conflicts. They run to the teacher. They can't sit in their seat. And they seem to need a personal individual invitation to put down their pencil and pay attention. Yeah, but they know their times tables. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, so just full disclosure. So my background is as a, as a Waldorf educator. And I do really believe that part of the behavioral problems in early childhood are from pushing down academics so young, kindergarten. I mean, when I was a kid, and I'm 50, so I'm old, but kids didn't learn to read till first grade, right? They weren't mm-hmm. expected to eat, sit in a chair and to do that. So I think sometimes a lot of expectations are what cause the problems, not the pro- The problem isn't in the behavior, it's in the expectation. Right. Well, and, you know, the way that childhood has changed. So yeah. the, the, I, the book argues that there are three factors that are contributing to this mm-hmm. crisis of self-regulation, the lack of the disappearance of childhood play. Mm-hmm. Right, the growth of media technology, you know, permeating our lives, and the third is that kids aren't contributing to their household or community. They're unemployed, you know, yeah. in a way. And you know, I was thinking about you. you. To use that term, they're yeah. unemployed. I, but I was thinking they're about you in a piece that I read online that I almost thought like. Wow, could she have written it? It was about uh, uh, Mayan culture in Mexico. Did you know about this? And how children as young as four, five, and six help out in the home without being asked. And the reason is that they're invited to do things as a kind of you get to contribute. And they love it. And young children often want to do things, but it's a pain in the butt because you're like, I got to get this done. Here's your your iPad. Please don't stir that because it's going to be a mess. But that in this Mexican culture, they see their children as allies, as part of the family business. And and not in a horrible Dickensian way, but (laughs) as, you know, this is like what we all do. And and, and the kids have a lot of self-esteem around that. And I wonder if there is just a way to turn it. But part of the problem is we don't even a lot of us don't even have time to stir that pot ourselves we're farming that out too mm-hmm. right right well it's certainly true that you know all this sort of outsourcing of household labor right. means that i mean some adults don't know how to exactly scrub a toilet or exactly. you know change the oil in the in the car so there's I know how to change oil. Oh, okay. Car. Just checking. <laughs> I like that you look the man in the room. I know. Well, because he's always telling me he can't do anything with a car, so I was seeing. Well, that's not under the hood. It's under the car. Oh, okay. All right. Um, my, my bad. To what degree, and I know you mentioned this briefly in the first hundred pages, but mm-hmm. to what degree are we talking about issues of class as well? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the families that you use as examples early in the book, there's the one family whose house has nine bedrooms. Right. And, you know, they all seem fairly affluent. Um. The kids aren't hurting for stuff and the kids are the usual like, yeah, you got piano lessons now and you got tutor and you got this and you got – that's that real go-go pressurized environment for kids. What did you find when you looked past that? Well, it's prevalent across the socioeconomic spectrum Mm -hmm. and in some ways the problems are worse at the ends. There's almost like a barbell distribution of Mm. anxiety, depression, you know, PTSD, um, ADHD, because kids who are who are in high poverty, high trauma, um, you know, violent or uncertain environments have a different different reasons for having anxiety and right. and, um, and attention problems. Um, and often in those situations, the kids still do, you know, will have a, have cell phones. Like when I went to Columbus mm-hmm. to the school that I feature in the book, most of the kids have cell phones, and they're, so they're playing on the phones. There's a lot of that social media um, technology aspect is still present, and a lot of them are trauma survivors or they're already, you know, currently living in uncertain So those phones become their escape hatch. Yeah, and the phones become the escape hatch, and also they have, um, they're much more likely to get triggered by some accidental brush in the hallway to immediately go to, to fight. So the, the issues that those teachers are facing are pretty intense, and I actually find that in a lot of these schools that are the highest need, they are coming to this discussion first. They say, yes, yeah. our kids really need to learn to self-regulate because it's not just, oh, wouldn't it be nice if our... It's also dangerous high- for right, them. it's dangerous. And so it's not, oh, our kids are so anxious and they're having trouble on tests. It's, we need a safe environment in our school. Right. Give us these tools. Mm-hmm. Right. I can totally say that. What about you? I mean, how did you, how did your education unfold? Um, and myself as a child? Yeah, oh and, and a young woman. And I mean, yeah. because writing takes a certain kind of quiet intensity of focus. I mean, things that are very hard to find now. I mean, I find it hard myself. Especially when, isn't your degree in 
Is it? Yes. <laughs> Ovid, tell us more. <laughs> yeah, well, I was very much a typical good girl, you know, high-achieving, straight-A student, um, teacher's pet. Where did um, you grow up? I grew up in Schenectady, New York. Schenectady. Oh, there's a Home word I haven't heard in a long time. Union College. Union College, where oh, my dad was you. a professor. Where my child did not complete the tour. Oh, oh no. Because he had already decided. <laughs> oh. That's connected. Okay, you had to learn to spell that early. Yes, S C H E N T C A D Y. Okay, that's good. He learned it fast and early. <laughs> um, and I, which was a great place to grow up. I loved upstate New York. And, um, but I actually went to boarding school mm-hmm. um, because I was doing my homework in front of the TV, and my mom finally gave in to my pleas to. You know. Okay, so were you what? But you were motivated <laughs> on your own. I was what it sounds like. Yeah. But I and part of it was I had a lot of autonomy. I had a lot mm-hmm. of independence. Mm-hmm. I my parents were not helicoptering, even though my mom is from Singapore. So you'd think right. she would be a tiger it's mom. Like that, that do you, now, I don't want to derail this biographical sketch, but do you make the argument that? Was there a study that showed how present the parents were didn't really actually matter? I think I remember, right. I remember that. That's yeah. overbroad, I know. Time, yeah, yeah. Right. The quantity yeah. of time right. is not correlated with kids' outcomes in most age groups. So you're studying in front of the fire and they say, fine. No, the TV. <laughs> the TV. <laughs> TV. Sorry, I had her confused with the little Lincoln. This is just what I was going to say. Wait. So you're in front of the TV Lincoln. writing with a quill <laughs> and they say, fine. We're and sending it a boarding school. Right. So, um, so because I had gone on, um, you know, with my dad on a reunion. My dad went to the same school mm. and actually was kicked out his senior spring. So, mm. um, oh my god, I love so, it! Yeah, Holden Caulfield action. He was. I, Are we? Is it Andover? Uh, Phillips Exeter. Phillips Exeter. Okay. See, I was, was close. And, um, and so I went. I went there for the you know three years, so mm-hmm. tenth to twelfth grade, and um, loved it. And I, lo- I think I really learned to write there because mm-hmm. we wrote every single day. We had in-class blue book, you know, essays that we wrote. We had lots of papers. And um, and so I just got really comfortable writing quickly, just producing a lot of words. Mm-hmm. And I also love math and physics. And I'm a little stubborn. So I think part of why I tended into the sciences is that I was – Am still am female, um, <laughs> oh. and, and you're in San Francisco. Yeah. And, <laughs> and um, my freshman year of college, the boys in my entryway said, "Oh my gosh, you're taking physics five B. There is no way you're going to oh. last." And so I, in some way, I think I got that degree to to prove them wrong. I love it, and it's really fun. I mean, physics is such a cool field to study. You're figuring out how things work. But aren't you tempted? I mean. I just feel like there are not enough good writers who can write about science. Mm. Aren't you tempted to write about physics? Yes, yeah, so a little bit. I graduated. Well, I gra- so I graduated from college, and I thought I'd go into science writing. Uh-huh. Oh, well, yeah. Before that, I thought I would be a physics PhD, and I applied to Berkeley, and did not get in. What? And I think if I so had, done. I think if I wanted <laughs> to go into a physics PhD, really, I would have applied to more than one school. Yeah, uh, but, maybe you just um, wanted to be on the West Coast. Well, it is a beautiful. Yeah, beautiful no, I feel like I could get that. <clears throat> I feel like for a journalist, as opposed to a novelist, having a science background, having that sort of it's discipline great. and yeah. that structure, probably isn't as bizarre as it sounds. Right. And it sounds like early you thought about writing in right. association. Somewhere. Yeah. And then it, and, it, and I got into business writing. Mm-hmm. So that made sense. And, and when I – so I graduated from college and I thought, okay, I'm going to go be a physics writer. I'll go work for science or, <sighs> you know, science news. So cool. And I, I couldn't get those jobs because I think most of the people had a master's or sometimes even a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, but the <laughs> I moved to New York City. I worked in a bakery. I, you know, got up at 6 a.m. to – to serve coffee and pastries to, you know, at the counter. And then from three to five, I would go on job interviews. And I actually got offered a book publishing job in the science department of oh. Oxford University Press. Okay. That sounds good. That's um, legit. Uh, editorial assistant job at Scientific or PC Magazine. Oh, yeah. It was. <laughs> and then a uh, copy editor at the Bond Buyer newspaper. And the bond buyer paid the best, mm-hmm. and I had done a tryout. So three days in a newsroom, I was kind of. I know that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, it was so much fun. Just yeah. you know, working at this intense pace, and then the next day you see what you did. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, so I worked in daily newspapers for a long time. Wow, that's yeah. so. What what years are these? So ninety four. I graduated from college in yep. ninety four. So ninety four through ninety seven, I was covering Wall Street for the bond buyer and. The the physics degree helped because not only could I do percent calculations. Yes, which. Is not 
No, right, I, right, I, I believe right, in, in a newsroom, it's it's actually an asset. Of course. And I also could have this little something in my back of my ego when the traders were super mean. I'd be like, I have a physics degree from Harvard. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Don't talk down Stuff to me. Stuff it, dude. Lightweights. <laughs> I, I, I often tell the story that um, I thought I didn't need math ever. Um, I have a, a master's in art history. My first job when I decided not to go to PhD was in the loans department at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I had to calculate the insurance oh. costs for like – a $15 million painting for six weeks going to Italy. So I had to convert it into Lyra. It almost oh, killed me. I wow. mean, I literally was terrifying. So <laughs> yeah. anyway, fr- you know, kids, just stick with the math <laughs> yeah. all the way through. You might need it. Right. I mean, yeah. we may not all need calculus, but like definitely. But arithmetic. Like arithmetic. Yeah. <laughs> I was not strong. <laughs> and Excel spreadsheets. I mean, they're, they're useful. Yes. Um, so I can totally see how that would be helpful for sure. So um, and then Blue, bon, the Bonbier moved me to DC, and I worked for them for a year in DC. And then Bloomberg News poached me because I was covering derivatives and hedge funds, and there was a huge meltdown. You may remember. Oh uh, yeah, I heard about that. Capital management. So um, then I was at Bloomberg for four years, which was also really fun. Just Daily Newswire again. It's great discipline to just mm-hmm. write not just one story, but like three or four stories a day. And and, and at this point. Are you thinking that there's a book in your future anywhere past the point where every journalist is thinking, yeah, I should probably write a book? No, not past that point. I mean, definitely, I think every journalist right. has at some point, Every yeah. writer. Yeah, every writer. Right. I mean, since I was 12, I wanted right. to write a book. Exactly. Um, but I didn't have a specific plan. And I really, I mean, I liked my beats that I was on, but I did not like them enough to want to write like a whole book about Enron's collapse or, mm-hmm. you know, and I also wasn't that close to it because yeah. being in D.C., I was writing about the policy, the regulation, you know, unless I wanted to write about, you know, the overhaul of the Dodd-Frank rules, I mean, which I didn't. It's a little dry. It's It was are, for are me, hard to make. Yeah, yeah. I think that some people, I mean, yeah. you know, look at Michael Lewis I was just or say look that. at, um, yeah. you know, some of the really dramatic stories that have come out of there. But for me, that wasn't what called to me. And then um, I left Bloomberg to go to Newhouse News Service, and I had sort of been building my journalism career and thought, oh, national correspondent for a newspaper chain. That's wow. like where I was headed. And what year is this? 2003. Okay, so you're about to have a child. Yes. <laughs> yes. That might change things. Yes. Speaking of math, I was just doing that. I know. He's really head. good at math this one. Yeah. Well, and this, that was another funny piece of this. Not so funny, but I um, got pregnant and told the um, – uh, the bureau chief, who I won't name right now, because um, then her question to me was, well, when are you going to go on maternity leave? And it was just under a year when mm. I would have been there. And I'm like, I really do not want to get fired. So yeah. I'm like, I'll go on maternity leave just at a year when FMLA kicks in. Oh. <laughs> and somehow the timing worked out. Smart. <laughs> but it seems like eventually that became the catalytic moment for your, for your writing career. Was it immediate? No, it was definitely gradual. It was just, um, uh, and turn leaves over, I'm going back. You know, yeah, yeah. I was so ready to go back to work after mm-hmm. my first maternity leave ended. I The first diaper I changed was my, you know, not even the 25-year-olds. Yeah, the, the current 14-year-old. Yeah. And, um, and so I really didn't know what I was doing with a baby. I loved it, you know, but I also yeah. missed work. Yeah. And I think work is easier. Yeah. From my experience. Working is hard. Uh, nurse, especially babies. Parenting, I don't know, but babies, is, I don't know, maybe. I like, Some people I are took, baby I took people. paternity leave. Yeah. You no, know, you were probably good at it. I, I don't there. know. I found it, I found being a working mother easier than being a stay-at-home mother. I have to confess. Yeah. I'll tell you what, when I had my child, I didn't actually have him, but when he was born, <laughs> I was teaching yeah. at a Catholic high school, the best job to have if you have a baby. Because they gave you paternity leave? They give you everything. Aww. I can't believe that that's You fantastic. can bring him to class. I brought him to class once because we didn't have it. Just bring him. Oh, I know. I used to bring my kids to class yeah, too. No problem. Yeah. yeah. I used to bring my kids to class See, too. but that's the part that I find stressful. Like yeah. now at 11 and 14 and 25, like, yeah. they can go with me anywhere. But yeah, 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 yeah. Like three yes, or it's five. Hard. It's very it's, hard. It just, I have this, I can't be split between, yes, you know, I agree. worrying about what they're doing. And, <clears throat> I agree. And working. So um, so I was writing for <clears throat> Newhouse about um, money, work, and family. And so that sort of edged into some of these personal mm-hmm. issues like work-life balance. I wrote a lot about flexible work policies and corporate um, change, and but not really parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until 
new house imploded in 2008 mm-hmm. that I said, okay, now this is sort of a oh, chance to redefine my it. own beat. And so you started doing something for about.com and was yes. that born of necessity? <clears throat> yeah. So in the <laughs> spring of 2008, my, the bureau chief at the time was Linda Fibic wonderful mentor of mine. She started walking around the newsroom kind of saying loudly, everyone should always have a backup plan. Mm. So I figured Yeesh. I should get a plan B. Yeah. So I so I found oh. this, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, we'll like oh, okay. So um so I started writing for about.com about working moms and just cuz it was so easy. I didn't have to really report anything. I So it was sort it of personal yeah, personal take. Yeah. I mean, I was actually called an expert. I think that's what they call. Yeah, <laughs> well, you were a working parent, so. right? Okay, yeah. yeah. But it was very, you know, very easy first person or mm-hmm. you know second person advice, and um, so I was able to do it on, in the evenings, weekends, and churn out what they needed. And then in August, they announced they were closing the bureau. And so I said, okay, I've got one freelance client. Let me see if I can pick up another couple. They gave us quite a few. I think they gave us three months to nice. job hunt. So mm-hmm. I job hunted. I also did some, they gave us some training on entrepreneurship. And then when the moment came, I had a job offer and I had a few freelance clients. And I figured, yeah, might as well give it a shot. Right. I had a little For severance. Sure. I'd try, try a year as a freelancer and... Um, and if I, I like it, I'll do a second year. Um, and the job offer also would have required me to quit on my freelancing. And they wanted me to go back to full time because I had been at 80% mm-hmm. and not, yeah, not do any outside work. So I'm like, that doesn't seem wise at the worst month of the Great Recession. Right. Like uh, this could all implode. In a yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although we don't talk, we have a lot of people who tell a similar story of having been staff writers. And then they go freelance. We don't really talk much about dealing with the weight of the financial mm. insecurity of making that decision and what you have to weigh. So how much did that figure into your decision? Oh, it was definitely – that was the bar. I, I'm like, if I can make what I used to make at mm-hmm. Newhouse, I will stay freelance. Mm-hmm. And I had gone through a few years earlier. My husband is a physician. He had launched his own medical practice. So we'd had a couple years of – no to right. little income right. mm-hmm. where I was the breadwinner. And so he sort of felt like, well, this is your turn. Mm-hmm. You know, take a year, you know, making very little and see if you can figure it out. And um, then I came to a point by my third year, I was making as much as I had made at Newhouse. And I kind of felt more secure having 10 freelance mm, clients. Regular clients. Than yes. a right. single employer. Right. I got one. And especially in business journalism, yeah. pay is decent and they're good clients. And, and they I was, pay their bills. They pay their bills. Yeah. I mean, some of them paid direct deposit 25 right. days after mm, wow. invoice. So, yeah, it worked out for me with yeah. the portfolio of, of uh, publications I was writing for. And then let's move forward a little bit. Uh, actually, no, let's integrate when you start taking your parenting classes. So what yes. spurred that on? Um, were you, th- a, were you, I have a quote from you. Uh-huh. Early on in the book, when you see these things and you say, perhaps I've ruined my children. <laughs> <laughs> Not every, to be too hyperbolic. Yes. Every parent's nightmare. <laughs> and every parent's thought. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely, you know, it was, I can pinpoint the moment when Ava was three and a half and, um, and just had was going through that three-nager stage that people talk about. Three-nager. <laughs> and just, I had no tools, you know. Um, oh, right. And so I figured I would try something that I could learn at a parenting class. And so I went to the Parent Encouragement Program, PEP, in Kensington, Maryland, and just loved it. And it was a very different way of thinking about parenting than I ever had. Um, and my husband, Brian, went with me. So we were sort of on this journey of you know, mind change together. And what was the the light? What what then was? The light was, I am not supposed to be in charge of everything. And in mm-hmm. fact, that may be part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And in fact, controlling the kids, you know, is, is not the goal. The goal is to help them learn to control themselves, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's so many different strategies that, you know, go along with that where when you're sort of a coach instead of the boss, you know, you, it takes some of that pressure off. I, I don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be perfect. My kids 
um, you know, untamed hair is not a reflection of me as a mother. <laughs> I mean, your moral standing. Yeah. Although it's interesting you say that because I said to Larry, I can't remember if I said it on air or not, but uh, some of the biggest um, judgment I felt from other parents is on my not being helicopter enough. Yes. So it's kind of refreshing and exciting for me to have this current wave of <laughs> pushback on helicopter parenting mm-hmm. because it was really hurtful to be seen as a, you know, a laissez-faire parent when I didn't see myself that way, but I don't really care about hair. Right. <laughs> it doesn't mean I don't care. Yeah. Um, or whatever it is, right? Uh, I don't know what my point is. I just think, like, parents can be really hard on each other. Oh, yeah. No, I feel, and I feel strongly that your child's body is their property. Yeah. You know, I'm not yeah. in charge of their hair. I'm not in charge of their clothes. You know, uh, I would get texts from the school, your child forgot their snack. And I'm like, why are you texting me? They forgot it. <laughs> I'm like the, the, the eight or 10 year old in front of you is old enough. Yeah. To, and that's actually our goal is for them to be the ones who are reminded or don't have to be reminded. They figure out, oh, I'm not hungry after school or I am. So I better remember the snack next time. All right. Although I'm the kind of parent who my kids are 20 and 16, yeah. I still say, like, you're going to leave without a jacket? <laughs> like, you got to have a jacket, It man. does seem like there's... in San Francisco. <laughs> well, does. the other interesting piece of this, I, my parents live with us now, uh-huh. so they help a lot oh. with child care. And that has helped me yeah. because when my, I era. head out on a trip, like mm-hmm. this book tour, and my mom says, did you remember your passport or driver's license <laughs> or umbrella? I think to myself... Oh, boy. I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> I am X. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so now I just, I'm like, I translate it in my head like, that means I love you. It doesn't yes, mean I totally. think you're incompetent or, right, you know, you haven't done this a hundred <laughs> times before. In my mind, it's just that I'm always cold, shouldn't they be? <laughs> well, yeah. Except I'm cold. In here. I, that's an old I'm joke. Cold I'm here. cold, put on a jacket. Yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> so let's flash forward then. You're you're a student and then you are the master. <laughs> <laughs> Sensei. When does it become... A good idea for a book. And <coughs> Sorry, when do you come to the conclusion that kids are different? Okay. So um, in 2012, I was writing a story for Washington Parent Magazine. And at the end of the interview, sort of this typical f- feature piece, service piece about how do you handle it when discipline at school is different from discipline at home. And the expert I was quoting, Ross Green, gave me a great gun, all the quotes I needed, which was great. And at the end of the interview, we were just chatting, and he mentioned he was moving his family from Boston to Maine to implement his model of discipline in schools in Maine. And I was impressed. You know, he's uprooting his teen kids and his wife and leaving Harvard Medical School and, you know, um, Massachusetts General Hospital. And so I started interviewing a few um, principals who had used his model. I talked to a juvenile justice warden who had used his model, and they just raved. And they said, this is changing the lives of the kids who need it the most. Mm. And I had been kind of looking, you know, for what was my big story? What was the the big, you know, magazine feature that was going to be noticed? Mm -hmm. So I thought, huh, maybe this is it. And so I took a chance and flew myself to Maine and shadowed him for a few days and followed some families that were in the schools that were using his model. And then I came back and started pitching, you know, um, editors to try to get it placed. And it was Mother Jones who decided to run it. When it ran, it, as the kids like to say, went viral. Yes. (laughs) What was that like? Oh, it was, um, it was great. I mean, it it just blew our minds. And the first hint of this was when it went to like 250,000 page views. We're like, oh my gosh, you know, quarter million page views. And so I was, you know, so excited. And then it went to like a million so suddenly it was oh my at gosh, a scale. That's an amazing. Yeah, number, right? yeah. And then now I think it's up to six million page views. It's the most read story Mother Jones has ever published. Yeah, I knew that. So, um, so how, that circles us kind of back to one of my first questions: was is that also a scary place to be? It's exciting. It's great for your career. It probably helps you get a book deal. But what about all expectation? People, and- but people also wrap a lot of, I don't know, self-whatever in parenting styles or their parenting ideas. Yeah. Did you read the comments? Were you a target? Yeah. Yeah. I was – I have always and I still am concerned about being yeah. a target. So I, like, try not to talk about my kids in interviews. Yeah. And, I, like, I don't put their faces on social media. Yeah. Like, I'm not as worried about myself, but I don't want them totally. to be a target. Yeah. So um, 
Yeah, it was a little scary. I, there were some comments I skimmed over. Yeah. But I was surprised it wasn't as sort of hateful as I had That's worried great. it would be. And actually, one of the comments that was a little bit negative turned into uh, – something that's in the book. So I tried to, you know, engage when I thought someone had a decent argument that Mm -hmm. they, you know, and I definitely think there's so much more I can always learn. So I I tried to view it as, as positive, but um, yeah, I think I was fortunate that, you know, I have friends who definitely have been like doxxed and harassed and, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was great to hear. Yeah, I was fortunate. And I think part of it is also a woman writing in the parenting space. I'm staying in my lane, you know, and that's, that was actually something that I had resisted going into parenting writing because I, I see that totally didn't yeah. want to be sort of like right. Whereas if hold. I no. did it, yes. I'd be getting out of my lane. Right. Although yeah. you have done it, written about it. Well, you've written about being a parent a lot. Yeah, it's it's sort of ghetto. I dadlet. Yeah, <laughs> but you don't get hate or targeted. Or... I don't write serious stuff. Yeah. I mean, I don't write. You know, here's what's going on. And here's what you can do. I do. Here's a funny thing that happened. Okay. Got it. So no one, they're fine with that, as long as it's funny. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> funny is good. Funny is funny good. Funny is good. Hard sometimes. Yeah. So take us through the process by which it's a sensational article and then is now a book. And you're an Yay. expert oh, showing up well, on Australian TV. So, <laughs> so I so I had this great plan. So you know who David Dobbs is? He's a science yes. writer. He's mm-hmm. wonderful. He was at a conference um, that the American Society of Journalists and Authors put on. And he had said, this was years before I started writing this piece, he had said, you know, if you want to write a book, start with a magazine article. And Mm -hmm. if you can time it so the magazine article runs at the same time your agent is shopping the book proposal, then there will be a bidding war and then it'll, you know. Oh, my gosh. So so brilliant. brilliant. Did you already have the proposal? I had a proposal written. I had been working possibly with an agent who might represent me and then two weeks before the story ran, declined to represent me. So I had had a rejected book proposal that I could kind of see was a little too wonky um, and maybe wasn't as, like, commercially viable. I can see see the risk of that. Yeah, because it was very much aligned with the article, which was about schools and kids of color and disproportionate punishment. And it was, I mean, it's something I very much care about, but I also needed to make enough money from a book advance that I could afford to do the book. So, um, so then I was going to get to that question. Yeah. So then I'm like, okay, my plan is almost coming together, but not quite. And my brother is in finance and art. He, um, runs a portfolio of art funds and a gallery, art gallery in China. And so he said, look, Clearly, there's a market for the ideas that you have because this story is going viral. Right. Just write to the top agents and ask them to meet with you. And I said, Chris, people don't do that. You query an agent, then you wait two weeks, and you, like, politely follow up. And he said, well, just what have you got to lose? You're hot now. And so he helped me write the email that I sent to, you know, my top 10 dream dream agents. agents. Right. Oh, I love this story. Yeah. So then they all agreed to meet with me. Wow. Oh my God. Like in person? In person. What? Being in DC, I'm (laughs) I'm like a, you know, Amtrak ride to, or bus. Actually, I I was a Vamoose bus ride because I was like, this is all on spec. So I'm like, okay, (laughs) I can afford 30 bucks for the (laughs) Vamoose bus. (laughs) And so I went up and met with them and, um, yeah, so ended up working with Richard Pine. So did you great. get did you get a chance to say how you like me now to the first agent who rejected you? I uh, know. Uh, no need, no right? Because yeah. you know it's happening. Yeah, and you know never know. Yeah, right? yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. You never know. People so know was there a bidding war? Um so we had multiple offers. Oh, so then what happened was so then I agreed to work with Richard or mm-hmm. he agreed to represent me and then we rewrote the proposal together fine, for yeah. a year and I oh, did a lot long. more okay. reporting. <clears throat> and so then um you know, the next summer he sent it out to publishers and there were multiple offers. And the thing so. is because it's online, I mean that's the great thing about the internet, right? It's still living. Right. It's mm-hmm. still being shared, right. it's being talked about. Right. And it's interesting to me because as a journalist you sort of you know, are raised to think, oh, your story today is lining bird cages tomorrow. Exactly. But if it's a significant story, people still remember it. And even now, which is six years later, I sometimes will go to an event and people say, oh, I came because I love that Mother Jones story. Yeah, I could see that. Hmm. I could absolutely see that. So when you begin the process, again, maybe I'm obsessing over economics, but what always stands out to me when I saw a a throwaway line, like the five years I spent writing this book... During that five years, I mean, you're traveling all over. 
How are you juggling that research with, I'm, I'm assuming you continue to freelance. Yes. How, 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 is it, how hard is it to keep those things separated in your brain? You can't see I'm making weird brain movements. <laughs> I know. It looks, it looks hard. Um, I might bit. use that as a diagram in the next book. Yeah, I, I think that over the course of freelancing, I learned to compartmentalize because I'm always doing mm-hmm. multiple projects for different owners, right? Mm-hmm. And so I have a, like a huge um, wall uh, wipe off board where I put, you know, my deadlines and I tried to just work in the book project as one of those clients that just happened to be unpaid. Um, and my friend, Laura Vanderkam, she just came out with a new book off the clock. Yeah. yeah. So she's written several books on time management and productivity and Ooh, I'm I lucky enough <laughs> to have her as my accountability buddy. So yeah, her new book off the clock is wonderful. It just turns your thinking about time and finding I have time around. to read it. I'm writing it down right now. Did you, uh, were you able to, so when you're traveling around doing interviews, are you also able to go back to the hotel and work on another thing? Yeah. Okay. So from 2012 to, so in 2012, I did that one trip to Maine. Mm-hmm. And um, from 2012 to 2015, I was doing local reporting. I was not flying myself around other than that one trip to Maine. So I was going to Virginia, Maryland, Baltimore, you know, D.C., and trying to keep my expenses under control. So I was not flying and going to a hotel room. Um, once I got the book advance, then I was able to really travel. I'm trying to think if I did any travel. I did. I think I did do some travel just to Columbus because I had the school that I really loved. But it was combined with other conferences, like a conference I went to that they paid. So I tried to just be efficient about the reporting. You know, if I was someone was paying to send me to a conference, I would look around and say, okay, what schools mm. can I visit that are near there? Or is there a family? And I did interviews by Skype. Like I, you know, I, and I, I great. you know, then I could yeah. say like describe the room that the person was in and have more mm-hmm. visual scene. Um, so really I didn't invest that much more money mm-hmm. until I had that book advance, but I did invest a lot of time. Um, yeah. And it just snowballed. It started with two hours a week. First thing Monday morning, and this is what I was going to say oh. about Laura Vanderkam, is that I was trying to find the time, like, where do I find the time to work on this book proposal? And I was trying to do it Friday afternoon, and it always got shoved right. off Especially the end of my schedule. Kids yeah. and the whatever, yeah. Right, 3.30 or 5, yeah. they're home. So she suggested moving it to Monday morning, where it couldn't get and it's shoved. And so fresh. Right. Like you're fresher. So energy, you're yeah. optimistic. So, and my de- my husband actually worked from home on Mondays, so he was able to do all the drop off and kid stuff. So Monday morning was my sacred, you know, two hour block. <laughs> I knew you were going to make a face. <laughs> I love this. I'm having a freak out. The accused dream is a sacred block. I know, but that is my dream. Yeah, it worked really well. And I, so many people say, "Oh, you have to write every morning," and just that two hours. And it wasn't even writing at the beginning; it was reporting. Right. It was sort of figuring right. out who, what are who are my characters? What am I? Who am I? Who do I want to interview? you. I do think that the, one of the most underappreciated things about writing is just the chipping away. Like yes. Chipping, 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 and it really can add up. Right. In meditation, they talk about if only mind, where oh. you have this like, oh, all these excuses. Oh, right. oh, if I had a writer's residency and I had a week. If only then, I had an office. Right. If only mind. In, a, yeah. in a community of like-minded writers. <laughs> Once that happens. Where I could. <laughs> now what do I tell myself? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> As you were as you were traveling along the, the road of researching the book, how much <clears throat> how often was there a moment of discovery for you where maybe mm-hmm. the book changed and turned out to be something you didn't expect it to be? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh several. Um Is that good or bad when it happens? It's <clears throat> a great question. There were lots of little moments of discovery of like cool studies that I found or really interesting personal stories, and some of them didn't end up in the book, but I kept track of them. And, you know, the book has definitely changed three big times that I can say. Like the first proposal is very different from this Mm -hmm. because it was much more of an education book. Mm -hmm. It didn't have this overarching narrative. And that is key, everyone out Right. Mm. It was just like chapter on this topic, chapter on yeah. that topic. It's and so necessary. Yeah. And how did you arrive at that narrative? Um, I did a little imitation. Like I looked at books that I thought really worked that I loved. 
like overwhelmed by Bridget Schulte, mm-hmm. who's been a wonderful supporter and um, encouraged me through this whole process, you know, has this sort of overarching narrative of the writer's journey to mm-hmm. understand something. And I thought that was really effective and would probably work um, because I needed that central question of why don't kids do what you want? <clears throat> but you're certainly not the first writer to come in here and claim to have been inspired mm-hmm. and, and claimed in a way that makes it feel like they're admitting they were inspired. Mm-hmm. I don't see any problem with that. We were just we were talking earlier mm-hmm. about how I'll read crime novels because I'm weak on plot mm. and I want to learn how to plot. So that's one way to learn. I, I also think, I think not just imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but really stealing's all there is. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> on some level. Right. Like well, inventing it yourself is a hard road. And there's a reason why people haven't done it because it probably doesn't work. Yeah. Um, but well, that, that through line thing I think is it's essential and easy to think you can get away without and you have to have it. Yeah, and I also knew I wanted to write a book that was narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, the books right. that I love. And in some way, this is kind of a science book because mm-hmm. there's so much about psychology and neuroscience. Yes. And and this, the books I really love are the ones that make that vivid and mm-hmm. narrative and there's scenes. And um, I was sort of dogged that this was not going to be a parenting advice book mm-hmm. where there's like a little anecdote followed by the takeaway. And a chart. And right. it's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah, you could have easily right. had tons of appendices. And not that there's anything wrong. No, there's no. There's great books no. like that, but there's no. so many. Right. Mm-hmm. There's amazing books that tell you I what to do. I actually find them literally impossible to read. I don't, I don't know if it's because of my age that I can't have things in those bite-sized pieces, but I cannot, fa- I can't mm. manage it. But so was this an instinct you had that it would be more effective or was it just the way you thought you wanted to do it? It was just the way I thought I wanted to do it. it and it really was the books that I love to read mm-hmm. are yeah. the books that are structured that way. You know, like the Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg right. and um, How Children Succeed by Paul Tuff and Poe Bronson's book, Nurture Shock. Oh, I know that you know. guy. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, that, those are the kind of books I wanted to write, mm-hmm. like where it wasn't, you know, really pulls you in and makes you curious to understand what's going on. When my kids were little, I used to, um, you know, be reading parenting books and be so annoyed. It's like it was well-written and you're really kind of into it. And I would think, God, leave me alone so that I can read this parenting <laughs> and learn book. learn how to parent you. <laughs> <clears throat> and in doing so, were you aware that you were setting yourself up for a wider audience? Um, well, I don't know that – actually, I don't know that this is – that structure or that style is a wider audience because uh, one of my negative Amazon reviews, which I know I shouldn't read, oh, says that, I, you know, I didn't have enough takeaways and practical <laughs> advice. So, oh. you know, I, it's, there is definitely a very wide audience for that. Um, right. What made it, I think, a broader audience was when I said, okay, parents will be buying this book, not teachers. Mm-hmm. And I said, mm-hmm. this is going to be, you know, about yes. parenting. Yes. And there's two two of the models. So I write about four models of discipline. Two of the models are in schools. Two are in homes. Mm-hmm. But we don't really get to the schools until pretty well through, you know, maybe half the book. So you envision this on a night table, not in a classroom. Yes. And I, I want educators to read it too. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad that they are. But um, that was sort of the cold hard business advice from my agent that we need to sell this as a parenting book. It has to be shelved on parenting Mm -hmm. in order to get publishers to bid That's something that I think people outside the world of writing don't realize that you have to have a specific niche for the book to be in a bookstore right? <laughs> and be sold. you got to know who you're writing for. And, oh, and that too, of course. But, I mean, it's pretty astonishing how very specific it has to be and so, daunting. How did you know when you were finished? Um, with the book? Yeah. Well, I had a deadline. Okay. Um, and so you having, had to be finished. Yeah. Having been a daily journalist, I take those very seriously. Yeah, same. So I actually – Public Affairs was or is a part of Perseus Book Group, and they were acquired by Hachette during the process oh. of my, you know, uh, signing the contract. So suddenly my during, deadline – During the Amazon years? <laughs> <laughs> it was fortunately they had gotten past that piece. Okay. Just curious. Slightly. <laughs> So, um, so I actually had a deadline of August, and my editor called and said, "Oh, is there any way you could turn it in early?" So, oh so then I'm like, "Okay, yes, I can do that." And 
you know, I just oh figured I figured that I wasn't going to get paid more, a bigger advance if I took more time. Mm-hmm. And having kids, mm-hmm. it's sort of like you feel like you're on this clock where, mm-hmm. you know, my kid's starting high school in the fall. I do not want to be launching a book on in the yes, fall that's of true. That's high true. school. That's true. So yeah. I really wanted it to come out this spring. And I also didn't want to, being in D.C., have it come out during the midterm elections. Yeah, mm-hmm. no kidding. That's, so, that's really that's, smart. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. So I had this sort of pressure and... Through this whole process, since I first discovered Ross Green, I felt this, like, I'm getting away with something. How does nobody know about these amazingly successful research-backed discipline yeah. models? Someone's going to scoop me. I know. I could imagine feeling oh, that so way you felt sure. a yeah. sort of sense of urgency. Yeah. yeah I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. But how do you speed up the process? Because one of the things I find very stressful when I have a deadline, which I have right now, that and I have never been a daily journalist, so I feel anxious all the time is it takes as long as it takes. Like yes. I can't make it take fast. I can't go faster. I'm sometimes. Yeah. Well, and it did take longer than I had hoped because, yeah. you know, back to, I wanted in 2015 to have that bidding more then and start yeah. the book then. And <laughs> yeah. so, you know, the whole process is probably everything's taken like six to nine months longer than right. I thought. But by the time I sold the proposal, I would say a third of my reporting was done. That's mm. really good. So yeah. I was able to, you know, work and stuff. And and then, then I had some really good advice from people who said, as soon as you do the reporting, write that section of the book. That's really because, smart. Oh, yeah. That's really smart. You know, and so I was continuing to do reporting, but I still was working on the manuscript. So last spring, you know, when I had a think, June 1st deadline and I was still reporting, you know, scenes in – April, and I had a lot of the manuscript written, but I was sort of doing this iterative process where I was filling stuff in. So um, that's yeah. very good advice to just keep starting yeah. instead of thinking I'm going to get all the research done and then I'm going to know. There's always more research. And now, since we're starting to run out of time and air, and air, <laughs> uh, here you are in your tour. How long have you been on tour? Since April 17th. Yeah, and it is. Mid-June. It's yeah. mid-June. Your sidekick joined you the last day of school, I heard. Yes. Oh, that's nice. I've tried to – this is something I took from the work-life balance uh, reporting that instead of just being away from my kids to try to bring them with me. So I've taken every kid on one of the legs of my book tour. I was telling Larry, I really like that. Yeah. I feel like my kids have no clue what I do. and But they don't seem to be very interested, so I think I'm not going to make them do it. But I feel like they'd be interested if they knew – yeah, that's a good. Uh, that's a really good point that I'm not going to go into right now. It's, <laughs> okay. Made me think of something. Yeah. But um, are you so are, are you able to continue working on freelance projects while you're touring, or is no. that no? Yeah, oh. I. It's so much work than I thought. Mm-hmm. I, I I did not realize how exhausting it would be just to yeah. even be on for you know interviews and hey. book yeah. talks. An and, hour, like you're going to talk, yeah. right? Yeah. For an hour, then you're leaving here and going somewhere, right? Talk right. It's hard. Yeah. So it's really exhausting, hard. and and I hear the travel is very exhausting. The as well. travel is exhausting. Yeah. I mean, I'm grateful, and I've had an amazing partnership with Public Affairs to be able to so do good. it. But um, so yeah, I'm planning to take August off. Good. And then, and I do want to take, like, there's a couple clients that have been waiting that I want to get back in touch with June 21st when I get home and say, yeah, I want to do a couple pieces over the summer, probably do some back to school writing to promote the book. And and, and does this, does this turn into, we talked earlier about you being an expert now who appears on TV. Does this turn into Catherine parenting expert next book? Or Catherine, back to being freelancer. Hmm, I'll give some time to think about the next book. Yeah, well, I hope that I'll buy myself a year to sort yeah, of think, figure that out. But yeah, I hope to write a second book. Um, I think it may be like having a baby where you have to forget a little bit how hard it is before you go back in. So I, I'm going to give myself a little time to. Just to refresh your memory on what it's like to have a baby, I told I told you my buddy who has a two year old. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I said I have this book on parenting if you want to read it. And he said, "Does it come with a mechanical fist to punch myself in the face with?" <laughs> and then Larry said, "His kid is too." Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Kenny. <laughs> yes, um, uh, my mother had nine children, and when I was pregnant, and I was asking her about pregnancy and young children, she couldn't remember anything. And I'm like, oh, there's the secret right yeah. there. So that's how you write a second book. <laughs> right. She I think so. doesn't remember. <laughs> well, Catherine, you do travel and you are a moving target. So why don't you tell our audience how they can find you online? Uh, CatherineRLewis.com is my website. Catherine with a K. On Twitter, it's at Catherine Lewis. Instagram is Catherine Reynolds Lewis. 
And Facebook is Catherine R. Lewis because I could not get a consistent I, brand across. I don't, I'm amazed you have those. I'm amazed you have them. Yeah, that's pretty good. Larry and I don't have our names. We don't have ours. But mm-hmm. go ahead and tell us what yours is. Okay. Um, well, my Instagram and Twitter are at BeQuintrust, B-Q-U-I-N-N, Trust. And what else? Oh, BridgetQuinnAuthor.com. There you go. Uh, me, you can find me uh, Twitter and the Instagram at that Larry Rosen. As for the Grotto Pod, we have a new Instagram. Guess account. what? We have an Instagram, and it's the same as our Twitter, the Grotto Pod. Yeah, you guys. Cool. Speaking of which, it. here, let me take a picture. Of you guys. Oh yeah, yes. do that. I, I, need I feel bad because Catherine was wearing this great leather jacket. I made her leave outside <laughs> so she didn't die. Both look this way. All right, okay. we're good to go. All right, uh, you can email us grottopod at gmail dot com. I like the meta. I know. Everybody look for that along with the falafel postings. Yeah, the falafel postings. Um, I think we need to thank our producers. Yeah, let's thank them. Beth Weingarner, Lee Kravitz, and Lorianne Doyle. Thanks, guys. Also, our partners. Our partners are the San Francisco Public Library. Look for our next... Ooh, it's going to be so good. Our next event, July 24th, with poet Matthew Zapruder. We'll talk about his favorite book. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. It is cool. Yeah. And uh, Babylon Salon, yep. our other partner, we might show up and I'll raffle stuff off the next Babylon Salon. You never know. It happened last People time. People who showed up last time got a very cool Gratopod sweatshirt. It could happen again. Yep. There's one more thing that's left to be said. I need to say, read, write, just keep working. Mm-hmm.